And I want to ask you, if you will, to join me over in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, this morning. Matthew, chapter 27, page 1042, if you have an old Schofield Bible. 1042, or the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, chapter 27. I want to read some verses here, and then I'll ask you, if you will, uh, to uh, leave your Bibles open and just follow me along as we kind of work our way through this text this morning. I want to remind you, along with Brother Zach, about the service tonight at 5.30. I hope you'll be back for that. And hopefully, you know, it's going to be pretty all day long. I mean, it's supposed to be, I don't think, maybe start clouding up till later on, and and uh, maybe some rain or something tomorrow, and that's your weather forecast for today. Thank you for tuning in to AccuWeather. But uh, uh, hopefully we're going to have a good day all the way around, both services, and I appreciate the Lord letting us have a beautiful day for Sunday. After four Sundays, uh, first time we've got to run our church buses in four Sundays, and we're excited about that. Praise the Lord. All right, got your Bible now, Matthew chapter 27. If you're there, would you say amen? All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. You know, if you were to get your calendar out again this morning and do some checking, you'd find out that we are exactly 21 days away from daylight savings time. So we get to spring forward in 21 days. I like it when the days get a little bit longer because, you know, you start working outside as spring comes along. And uh, so 21 days, we get to set our clocks ahead, and the days will be a little bit longer. If you were to start counting from today, February 21st, you would find that we're actually 27 days away from the first day of spring. Can you believe that? And uh, it'll start snowing then. The first day of spring, it'll start snowing. So we're 27 days away from spring. And then we're exactly, if you were to count them today, we're exactly seven Sundays or 49 days away from Easter, our celebration of the resurrection of our Savior. Well, you may remember in these Sunday mornings leading up to Easter that we we are currently in a series of messages that I've entitled, Considering, Considering Calvary. As I told you last Sunday morning, my motives for preaching such a series of messages are purely selfish. I realize that in the days and the age in which we are living in with COVID and then the election and all that's transpired in recent months, you know, it's been a a little bit easy to let your hearts get a little bit cold and indifferent on God. And I think all of us in here, if we were honest, if we were truthful, would say, you know something, preacher, you're exactly right. But there's not anything that I know of that'll warm up the heart of a cold Christian like considering Calvary. Then I think that's true of our church. You know, in recent days, there's so much that's happened. You know, our church needs a touch from God. You know that. I believe you feel that. Our church needs a visit from, from God, and there's nothing that I know of that will warm up, heat up the services of a, of a church like considering Calvary. So in these Sunday mornings as we make our way toward Easter, we are lingering at the foot of the cross. We've been trying to walk around Calvary in these days in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just hang around Calvary. I, I tell you what, we need to get back to Calvary again. Somebody said, Preacher, why don't you tell us something a little bit deeper than all that? I don't know anything any deeper that you'll find in the Bible than the love of God at Calvary. So we're spending some time walking around Calvary. You know, there's a whole lot that can be said about Calvary. For instance, I could talk about the wounds, the wounds of Calvary. You know, the beating that Jesus took and endured before he ever reached the cross uh, would have killed the average human being. I mean, you think about the scourging, the smacking, the buffeting. You think about... Uh, 
You think about the crown of thorns. You think about the beating that he endured before he ever got to the cross. It would have killed the average man. But then think about coupled upon uh, with all that. Think about what he endured while he was hanging on the cross of Calvary. I'm talking about the blood loss and the dehydration and the pain associated with Calvary. Much could be said about the wounds of Calvary. Did you know much could be said about the words of Calvary? You know, if I think it, you'd be hard-pressed to find, going through the entire Bible, to find any greater statements that's made in the whole Word of God than the statements that was made while Jesus was hanging upon the cross of Calvary. I think he saved some of the greatest things that he ever said for those six hours that he was hanging on Calvary. You'll find there were seven statements that Jesus made while he was hanging on Calvary. There were three of those statements were made in the first three hours in the daylight. Three of those statements were made in the last three hours in the darkness. And then one of those statements was made right before he died upon the cross of Calvary. I'll tell you what I believe the Lord did. I think he took the two pieces of wood that comprised the old rugged cross and Jesus while he was hanging there took those two pieces of wood and made a pulpit out of it and preached seven of the greatest sermons you and I would ever hear while he was hanging there upon the cross of Calvary. What words that we find at Calvary. By the way, not just words of the Savior, but I think about some of the words that his enemies spoke there. What statements that we find while he was there on Calvary. But this morning, the message is not about the wounds of Calvary. And the message is not about the words of Calvary. I want to preach this morning on the wonders of Calvary. I want to talk about some of the miracles that took place while Jesus was there on Calvary. So if you'll join me now, look in our text, Matthew chapter 27. Join me now in verse 45. Let's begin to read. The Bible said this, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sapphani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now drop down to verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake, and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. You know, I got to thinking as you read through the Bible, you study through the Bible, you'll find that oftentimes when God was dealing in some of the greatest events of human history, it was always surrounded by a cluster of miracles. For instance, I think back during the days of creation when God was creating everything that there is, God would say this, let there be and there was. You know, creation was surrounded by a cluster of miracles. By the way, the only, the only word I can come up with for creation 
is miracle. God did it. It is a supernatural work of God. When you think about Israel and their exodus from the land of Egypt, you think about all the miracles that surrounded that great event. You think about the hail and the lice and the flies, and you think about the water becoming blood and the frogs that came up upon the land until literally the empire of Egypt was literally brought to its knees, and God brought his people out of the land of Egypt by a cluster of miracles. I think about when Jesus was born and how that that great event in human history was surrounded by a cluster of miracles. I think about as Jesus walked the sandy shores of Galilee and he performed his public ministry, how that his ministry was surrounded by a variety of miracles. And now here at Calvary, during the last hours of the Son of God, upon the cross of Calvary. God was moving once again and that great event was surrounded by a cluster of miracles. In fact, if you look at the text that I've read this morning, you'll find out there were five great miracles that took place. I'm calling them the wonders that took place while Jesus was hanging on Calvary. Watch this. Number one, God on that day reached out and he touched the sun. The Bible said darkness covered the land. The Bible said that God reached out and not only touched the sun, but God reached over and touched the sanctuary because the veil was rent from the top to the bottom. And then we read that God touched the stones because the stones rent. They just break apart. But God not only touched the sun and the sanctuary and the stones, God also touched the sepulcher because the Bible said that many of the saints of God that had been dead for some time got up out of the grave and went to town and started walking around. God touched the sun. God God touched the sanctuary. God touched the stones. God touched the sepulcher. But then we read in verse 54 that God touched the soldiers. Aren't you glad we serve a God that can touch the heart of people? These are wonders that surrounded Calvary. Now it's 1031. You listen fast. I'm going to try to preach fast and get through these five wonders that took place the day that Jesus was crucified. First of all, let's talk about the miracle of the sun. How that God touched the sun. I'm calling that the miracle of separation. Now, if you look at verse number 45, the Bible said that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. You know, the day that Jesus was put on the cross of Calvary, when the Son of God was being murdered, the Bible said that God enveloped the land in a great thick darkness. In fact, the Bible said that the day that Jesus was put to death on Calvary, that the entire world was shrouded in a cloak of darkness. From Dan to Beersheba, from east to west, there was a darkness that covered the land. Now, you may stop and think, preacher, what's the, what's the big deal about darkness? Because, you know, we face darkness every day of our life, and I get that. You know, I know we're at 10 10.32, 
right now, and we're in the opening hours of this day, and in just a little while, the sun will reach its zenith, and light will cover this land. But if God lets us live long enough till about 6 or 6.30 tonight, you know something? Our land will be enveloped. It'll be shrouded in darkness once again. So really, it may lead you to think, you know, what is the big deal about darkness? Well, let me tell you something. The darkness that covered the land this particular day, when Jesus was put to death on the cross of Calvary, it it was a supernatural darkness. It's almost like God took a big old funeral crepe and just hung it over the sun and darkness engulfed the land. The Bible said from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Now what makes that so unusual is this. You got to understand that in the Jewish economy, in the Jewish estimation of time, their days went from six o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the evening. That was a Jewish day. Six in the morning till six in the evening. Now let's do some math. If the sun went dark at the sixth hour of the day, six and six makes 12 o'clock noon. And it stayed dark from 12 o'clock noon, the sixth hour, until three o'clock in the afternoon or the ninth hour. Now what makes that so unusual is we know that to be the brightest part of the day. And yet, in what is usually the brightest part of the day, it became the darkest time this world has ever known as God said, let there be darkness the day the Son of God hung on on the cross of Calvary. You know the Bible predicted that was going to happen. I mean hundreds and hundreds of years before it ever happened, God in heaven said, there's going to come a day that I'm going to black the sun out. Back in the book of Amos chapter 8 and verse number 9, the Bible said it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon and I'll darken the earth in the clear day. Hundreds of years before it happened, God said, I'll tell you, there's going to come a day and at the brightest part of the day, God said, I'm going to turn the lights out when Jesus is hanging on at Calvary. Now, if you happen to be thinking, well, preacher, this is just an eclipse of the sun. You know, we oftentimes have those periodically here. And, uh, you know, when, the, when the, uh, the sun is here and the earth is here and the moon comes between us, and they call it a lunar eclipse. And many times at the brightest part of the day, it gets a little bit dark around here. But you know something? The longest eclipse ever recorded on record since they've been keeping record was on January the 4th, 1992. And that eclipse lasts for a period of 11 minutes and 41 seconds. This darkness that we're talking about just didn't last for 11 minutes and 41 seconds. This darkness covered the entire world for a period of three hours. It was a miracle. God shut the sun off. God throwed the switch, and the sun refused to shine. You know, when Jesus was born, it was a time of great light. The Bible said when Jesus was born, the angels appeared and began to sing the great anthems, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. When Jesus was born, God hung a new star up in the sky, which brightly lit up the sky and announced to the world that a king had been born. When Jesus, when God created the earth, God said, let there be light, and yet now is the Son of God is being murder 
murdered and put upon the cross of Calvary. And God's doing his greatest work, not in creation, but in salvation. God didn't say, let there be light. God said, let there be darkness when Jesus was on the cross. Now, somebody said, preacher, what's the significance of all that? I'll tell you what I think the significance of all that was. There was a great separation taking place in that darkness. It was something so holy and something so sacred that God said it shouldn't even be viewed by human eyes. As people stood there looking at Calvary that day, it became completely, it became midnight at noontime. And people were groping in the darkness. And something so holy and something so sacred was going on upon that cross that God said no human eye should even see what is taking place at this time. And we're told a little bit later in this text that out of that darkness, Jesus said this, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, the one thing we know about Jesus is that while he was here on earth, before he ever got here, while he was here, and it forever will be, he'll always be in fellowship with God. Buddy, I'm telling you, there'll never be a time when Jesus is walking out of step with his Father. There'll never be a time when Jesus will ever be out of fellowship with his Father. You know, there are times in my life I get out of fellowship with God. I don't know if you've ever had that bad experience in your life, but there's times my heart gets a little bit cold. There's times my heart gets a little bit indifferent. There's times I let things creep into my life. Feelings and emotions get into my heart that causes me to get at a distance away from God. And can I tell you what? It's not his fault. It's my fault. Hey, if you've ever been out of fellowship with God, the one thing I know about that, God didn't do it. You did it. When I get out of fellowship with God, it's not that God's out of fellowship with me. I'm out of fellowship with him. I've let something come in my life that's caused us to be at a distance. But I want to tell you, the Son of God, Jesus, never done that. There's never a time he got out of fellowship with the Father. He always enjoyed the presence of the Father while he was here upon this earth. Can I show you this verse? Over in John chapter 16, verse 32, Jesus, just hours away from Calvary, said this to his disciples, Behold, the hour cometh. Yea, it is now come that ye, speaking to the, of the disciples, you're going to be scattered. You're going to forsake me. Every man to his own shall leave me alone. But Jesus said, boys, don't sweat it because I'm not alone. Because the Father is with me. Everywhere he went, the Father was with him. And yet, in the blackness of that hour, Jesus didn't say, My Father, my Father. But he said, My God, my God. Indicating a separation a distance had taken place between him and God. The only time in the scripture where Jesus called his father God on Calvary. You say, preacher, what was happening? The only thing I can come up with is this. Jesus on that cross was not just bearing our sins. Jesus was becoming our sin. 
Hey, every old bad thought, every old cuss word, every old drink of liquor, every old smoke of dope, every old shot of some type of bl old, old drug. Brother, I'm telling you, every act of immorality, everything we've looked at that we shouldn't have looked at, every thought we've had that we shouldn't have had, every word that we've said that we shouldn't have said, every step we've taken that we shouldn't have taken. Hey, I'm glad to tell you, Jesus born of Calvary. And then on the cross, he just didn't bear it, he become it. And God in heaven, because his son was becoming our sin, turned his own back upon his own son, looked away. For the first time, Jesus could say, I, I'm not, I don't have the presence of the Father. He's forsaken me during this time. He's left me here upon the cross. Jesus was bearing our sins and becoming our sin. And not only had his family forsaken him and his followers forsaken him, but during this darkness, even the Father had forsaken the Son of God. Let me tell you what makes hell so bad. Let me tell you, everything that a person will endure in hell, Jesus suffered on that cross. You think about people who thirst in hell. What did Jesus say while he was on the cross? I thirst. You think about the pain that people suffer in hell. Jesus suffered it on the cross. But to me, the greatest thing about hell is not the anguish. The greatest thing about hell is not, not the agony. The most terrible thing about hell is the abandonment. People think, oh, I'm going to go to hell. I'm going I'm to have fun with my family and my friends. Man, we're gonna, it's going to be one long high school reunion. We're going to get drunk. We're going to party in hell. Not so. Hell is not a place of family and friends and fun and fellowship. Hell is a place where you'll be eternally abandoned forever and ever and ever. I've had people on occasion before tell me, don't hand me another gospel track. I wish you'd just leave me alone. Don't invite me to church. Don't preach to me. Hey, don't invite me to, uh, to, to, to be saved. I, I'm tired. I wish people would leave me alone. Can I tell you something? You die and go to hell. Hell will be the place where God is going to leave you alone forever and ever and ever. You'll never feel the drawing of the sweet Holy Ghost of God again. There'll never be a word from God once again. You'll never have the sweet shines of sunshine on your face. There'll be no family, no friends no fun, no fellowship. It'll be over forever and ever and ever. Oh, there's going to be isolation and separation in hell. But Jesus said, I'll take that for you. Watch this. Listen. Jesus died forsaken so that you and I might not have to die forsaken. I'm talking about the wonder of separation. But there was another miracle that day because God not only touched the sun, God went over to the church that day, to the sanctuary. And the Bible said in verse number 51 that in the sanctuary, God did a work in the church that day, in the sanctuary, in the temple. For the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. Boy, what a miracle. What a miracle. Thinking about that day as Jesus died. You know, the Bible said in verse number 50, in verse number 50, that Jesus cried with a loud voice. I think here's what happened. If you piece it all together, it was about that time when Jesus died on the cross. He made one final statement, and his statement was this. It is. 
Jesus. And he cried with a loud voice. Now you thought, stop and think about that. I mean, there he had been beat to a pulp. There he had been hanging on that cross for six hours. There the night before, without sleep, the bodily fluids and the blood had been shed and he was so weak and emaciated. And yet, right before he died, he lifted himself up on that cross. He was not a victim. He was a victor. And he said, it is finished. He didn't say, bless your heart, I'm finished, because he'll never be finished. There's nobody in this world that can whoop our God. He'll never be finished. But when he said it, the it that he was referring to was the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption. It was finished. And as evidence of that, God went over to the church. God grabbed a hold of that veil. And God begin to rip it apart. God was saying something new has happened. You know, that old veil had stood there for 1,500 years. And I'll tell you what that veil said. Keep out. Stay away. No trespassing. God was behind that veil, sitting on top of the mercy seat, the Shekinah glory of God. That's where God lived, was behind that veil. And no human eye could ever go back there. No human being could walk behind that veil except the high priest, and that only once a year. And he did so at great risk and detriment to his own life. Listen, Moses never went back there. David never went back there. Solomon never went back there. Isaiah never went back there. Jeremiah never went back there. The only king I know of in the whole Bible that went back there was old Uzziah and God smote him with leprosy because he intruded into the holy things of God. Nobody had ever been back there. God had shrouded himself behind that veil and God in essence was saying stay out. Keep away. No trespassing. Don't come back here. I'm too holy for you. I'll tell you what I found out about that veil. It was 30 feet wide. It was 60 feet tall. It was as thick as a man's hand. And it was so cumbersome and so weighted that it took 300 priests to hang that in the temple. And yet on the day when Jesus died on Calvary, God said, I'm going to do something new. And he tore that veil apart. And God, because of the finished work of the Son of God on Calvary, because of what Jesus did, God is no longer saying, keep out, stay away, no trespassing. Now, because of what Jesus did, God is saying, come on in, welcome, stay a while, sit, let's talk a little bit, let's have some fellowship. Thank God it was because of what Jesus did. I have access. I can't, listen, I could, I don't want to. Let me preface that. I don't want to go see the president. But if I wanted to, I couldn't get in. I don't want to go see the governor. But if I, and I don't want to, but I couldn't get in if I wanted to. I couldn't get in to see Richard Burr. I called him this week. And was very kind, but told him what I thought. I don't even want to get in to see him. I had to leave it on a voicemail like he'll ever hear that. I couldn't even get in to see the mayor, Mayor Joins in Winston-Salem. I couldn't even get in to see him if I wanted to. But bless your heart, because of what Jesus did on Calvary, 
because of the blood that he shed for me on Calvary. Because he not only bore my sin, but he became my sin. I can get on my knees and in that name above every name, the holy name of Jesus, I can walk right into the presence of God. I can gain an audience, gain the ear, have a conversation with God and God will look at me and say, hey, you're welcome anytime, Tim. No matter what day it is, no matter what hour it is, no matter what's going on, you come on in. Let's talk a while. I'll see you. Come back soon. I love you, Brother Tim. Jesus did that for us on Calvary. That's the wonder of reconciliation. God no longer says, stay out. God now says, come on in. Amen and amen. The wonder of reconciliation. There was a third miracle. Watch this, 1048. Not only was there the miracle of the sun in the sanctuary. I'm going to combine this one. There's a miracle of the stones and the sepulcher. I mean, the Bible said the day that Jesus died on Calvary, the stones just broke apart. And you talk about a graveyard being a mess. Every graveyard in the country was messed up the day that Jesus died. You say, preacher, what has all that got to do with us? Well, I'm calling that the wonder of resurrection. Now, what do we mean? Well, let's consider them stones for just a minute real fast. I, I got to tell you, this is my favorite part of the whole sermon. But them stones. You remember the Bible said there in verse 51, the earthquake and the rocks rent. Watch this. You remember prior to Calvary, just a few days before Calvary, Jesus rode into town into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. How many of y'all remember that? It was called uh, the beginning of the Passion Week. It was the day that Jesus was making his official presentation of himself to Israel as their king, their Messiah. It had been prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, 700 years before it ever happened, that Jesus, the king of Israel, would ride into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And lo and behold, the day that he did that, a parade broke out. I mean, people, it wasn't like the Roman parades with the, the animals and the legions of armies. It's just a little old makeshift parade. Here comes Jesus riding into town on a donkey. And folks started grabbing their palm leaves. They were waving them. And they were taking their coats off and just casting them down for the donkey to, to, to walk upon. And there sat the Son of God. And Jesus was saying to Israel, hey, right here, I'm your king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. And you remember what happened that day? People were so excited about that that the common people were saying, Hosanna to the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name. Even little children, even little children, they were shouting the praises. And you know that religious crowd got mad about that. You know, religious people oftentimes have a tendency to get mad when people start praising the Savior. That's why don't you ever get upset when somebody jumps up and says, Glory. Don't ever get mad when somebody gets a little bit excited and says, hey, preacher, before you preach, can I say a word? Don't ever get excited when somebody starts waving their hand or, or shouts in church. Hey, 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 that's the way it ought to be. And if you're religious, that might upset you. But I got something more than religion. But that religious crowd got mad and said, Jesus, tell them to hush. And here's what he said. Luke 19 and verse number 40. He answered and said unto them, those religious people, I tell you that, that if these should hold their peace, Jesus said, if they don't shout, the stones 
would immediately cry out. There on Calvary, there was nobody there to praise him. I don't know where blind Bartimaeus was who sat by the highway side and Jesus touched him. I don't know where the maniac of Gadara, I don't know where he was at that day. I don't know where that woman was that had committed adultery and they threw her down to the temple and Jesus forgave her. I don't know where the lepers were that he'd cleansed and I don't know where those that were blind that he'd given sight, those who were deaf and could not hear. And he'd I don't know where they were at. Nobody was there to praise him. So the rocks busted open. And begin to praise God. I don't know about you, but I don't want a rock to do my part. The rocks rent. That's why we ought to be a little bit excited when we come to church. Friend, it's not about a dead mummy laying in a tomb somewhere. It's about a Savior who lived, who died, who lives, and is coming again. That's why we ought to be excited when we come to church. The rocks rent. And then, lo and behold, the Bible said there was a mess over at the graveyard. The scripture says the graves were open. Many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection went into the holy city and appeared. Can you just imagine? I mean, word got back to town. We don't know, man. Something weird's going on today. We heard over at the city cemetery, it looks like a plowed field over there. I mean, man, the graves have been thrown open. There's holes everywhere where people was buried. There's nobody there. We don't know what in the world has happened. And then the Bible said after Jesus resurrected in verse 53 that those saints got up, walked out of those graves. Watch this. And they went to town. I can see one little old boy go home. Maybe his daddy's been dead three or four years, and he said, Mom, you're never going to guess who I saw today. She said, No, son. She said, I, I don't know. Who was it? He said, Mama, it's daddy. She said, Your daddy boy has been dead now for three or four years, and I understand you wanting to see him. He said, No, Mom. No, I was over at Walmart today. Daddy's in there walking around, Mama. Mama, daddy's alive. I saw him. Mama, he come to town. You know, I've been in a lot of graveyards in my life. Man, I was in one yesterday. You know, graveyards are normally very well-kept, very well-arranged places, flowers, uh, yard mode, whatever. But boy, I'll tell you what, those graveyards look like plowed fields. And those people got up and headed to town. Can I tell you, bless your heart, what gives me hope? I've been to a lot of graveyards. I buried my mama. I buried my daddy. Man, I buried a lot of precious people that we've had here in our church. I've walked away, but boy, I'm glad the one thing that gives me hope is because he lives, because he got up. One of these days, it assures me my loved ones are going to get up. I'm going to be caught up with them. And you know where we're heading? We're heading to town. <laughs> We're heading to the new Jerusalem. You say, how can you be sure? Because he lives. They're going to get up some of these days. The miracle, the wonder of resurrection. I'm done with this. Well, watch this. Look at verse 54. Here's the greatest miracle that took place that day. I'm calling it the miracle of the soldiers or what I would call the wonder of salvation. Look in our text the Bible said here in verse number 54, we're told about this centurion. Now, centurion, immediately we see the word or hear the word century in that. We know a century is 100 years. And a centurion was a soldier that had 100 soldiers under him. So he was in authority over 100 soldiers. Now, evidently, this old boy's been a soldier for quite a while. 
I mean, to have such authority in the Roman legion, the Roman army. Evidently, he's been a soldier for a while. He's hardened. He's calloused. I mean, he's seen it all. He's been in battles. He's heard the cries of, of anger and death in battles. He saw the blood flow. He saw people die. I mean, he's heard. He's seen all of that. He's hard. He's calloused. He's cold. He's cruel. He's, he's, uh, he's calculating. Maybe he shows up at work that day on his work orders. The crucifixion of two Jewish malefactors and a Jewish man who claims to be a king. And he has the responsibility to put them to death. Man, I can see him as a Roman. You know, he hates those Jews. You know, that Jewish spot, Jerusalem, that was a hotbed for these Roman soldiers. It was such a hotbed. They had a, they had a special regiment of Roman armies stationed there because there was constant uprisings in that area. And them Romans with a passion hated them Jews. He couldn't wait. Those two malefactors, he's going to put them to death. But that one who claimed to be a king, we have no king but Caesar, he said. I'm really going to take it out on him. And maybe this old centurion was one of those who stripped layer by layer of the skin of the Savior from his back with the Roman nine tail, of the cat of nine tails. Maybe he was one of those who cleared his throat and spat in the face of the Son of God. Maybe he was one of those who, while Jesus was being crucified, was casting lots at the foot of the cross, so unconcerned, so calloused by it all. Maybe he was one of those who drove the nails in the hands and the feet of the Savior. Maybe he was one of those who pushed the cross up and let it hit the bottom of that hole, jerking the very bones and flesh and sinew of the Son of God till every bone was out of joint. Maybe he was one of those. But something happened to that old boy that day at Calvary. I mean, the Bible said there in verse number 54, he watched Jesus. Maybe he got to listening to what he said when he was on the cross. When he first got there, there was this mob of thousands of people shouting, crucify him. And Jesus looked over that angry mob and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or maybe he heard what he said to the malefactor. Lord Jesus, remember me when thou comest into thy... Today, today, child, <clears throat> shalt thou be with me. And he heard all that. He'd never seen such love, <clears throat> never seen such forgiveness, he watched him. He watched him. And then the reports started coming in. The earth was rocking underneath his feet. It got dark for three hours. Somebody said something happened over in the sanctuary. That big old curtain them Jews held over there, had over there. Man, just ripped right in two. And you won't believe this, but the graveyards are a mess around here. And he got to hearing all that. And he reached the conclusion, this guy wasn't a liar. This guy wasn't a lunatic. This guy wasn't a loser. This man, he's the Lord. He's the Son of God. He had a change of heart that day. Can I tell you something? Jesus will change your heart. And I can see him that night. He gets back to the barracks. He's watched all that's happened that day. And he goes to the barracks that night. 
There sits four or five of his buddies over here, and they're playing poker, five-card draw or whatever that is. And they say, hey, John, come over here, get in this card game. He said, I, I don't want to play cards. One of his buddies said, hey, 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 did you hear what Corporal, that dirty joke he told today about that woman? Come over here, let me tell you, John, you got to hear this joke. It is hilarious. John said, I don't want to hear that. One of his other buddies said, hey, why don't we go uptown and get something to drink, man? Just sit around the bar a little bit. He said, I don't want to go to the bar. And one of his buddies says, John, what's happened to you? I mean, we don't understand it. What's wrong with you? And here's what he says. I walked up Calvary Road where Jesus trod. I saw him hanging there, the Son of God. With tear-stained eyes, I knelt to pray. Father, hear my plea. Oh, praise the Lord. I'm glad I've been to Calvary. Can I tell you something? Bless your heart. A trip to Calvary will make a difference in how you live. I'm persuaded to believe if we could get people to Calvary, we wouldn't have to worry about a lot of this old garbage that's going on in the house of God and the lives of a lot of people who claim to know God. We could do away with a lot of this garbage going on if we could just get people to Calvary. It'll change not only how you die, it'll change how you live. And the greatest miracle of all was the miracle of that old soldier formerly a hater, now a lover of the Lord Jesus. I'm so glad I've been to Calvary. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you for these wonderful...